you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And as Pastor Brandon mentioned, we are continuing in a series through uh, Paul's letter to Timothy. Several years ago, my family and I took a vacation to Myrtle Beach. And uh, we'd spent an entire day on the beach enjoying the sand and the sun. And, and then afterward, we ventured into a little Italian restaurant just north of kind of the main strip, north of where all the tourist shops were. And uh, the dim lights and the old world accents created a very particular mood in this restaurant. And playing through the ceiling mounted speakers was Nina Rhoda's masterpiece, Speak Softly, Love. I only know that that was that song because that's the theme song to uh, the movie The Godfather. And the restaurant intentionally kind of took this theme that you were, you were going back into old world Italy. There was an attention uh, to creating a mood. Even the servers wore t-shirts that read on the back, when you're here, your family got it. And there, there, was, a, there was a, I love the point, even though it was tongue in cheek, whether you like it or not, whether you're ready to embrace this or not, you're here now and your family. And this is very much the way that it is in the church, isn't it? Uh, we are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ, siblings that we didn't choose, siblings who may be very different from us, and yet God has united us into a family. Again, sons and daughters of the living God. We're together through the good times and through the bad times through changes, through, through the unevenness of living on this fallen planet, we are united together as children of God. Again, family. We're in the 11th week of this study through 1 Timothy, and I've given this section, the series, Isn't She Beautiful? And of course, the she is a reference to the bride of Christ, the church. And look, I know that the church isn't always beautiful. I've been around the church long enough to see the good, the bad, and the ugly of the church. I've seen the church at her ugliest, really. I've seen the church turn on the very people that are part of the church. I've seen the people in the church devour one another over the silliest things. I've seen the church in, in her beautiful state, too. I've seen the church coming to the aid, to the rescue of those who are in need, caring for, serving, ministering to her own. Again, I could tell you story after story, and I'm sure that many of you could as well, of ways that you've seen the church really shine for God's glory and times when you, you've seen the church really at her worst. But despite her ups and downs, despite uh, her fickleness, God loves the church. She's still beautiful to him. The church is the bride of Christ and the church is still God's delight. The church is the vehicle through which God has determined to make known the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. And to the church, God has given leaders to direct and protect and feed and shepherd the church. Now, we've spent a couple of weeks, just a few weeks ago, looking at the qualifications of an elder, those who are called by God to lead the church. And then we looked at the qualifications and roles of a deacon, those who serve the church. And so we've seen that God gives his church leaders. Well, this morning we have the portrait of a leader, the example of what a pastor elder should be. But this is not just for pastors. It will have relevance for all of us, which I'll show you in just a moment. First Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to read and cover verses 11 through 16. The text reads this way. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, 
but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, we notice right away, and we've talked about to whom this letter was written in the context and so on. We notice right away, um, maybe on a different level, the very personal nature of this letter. Paul tells Timothy repeatedly to keep an eye on himself. Not just the church, but on himself. He says, let no one despise you. But set an example, verse 12. Devote yourself to the reading, verse 13. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, verse 14. And pay attention to yourself and to the teaching, verse 16. When a man goes into pastoral ministry, when God calls a man to serve and lead the church in this way, he is very quickly persuaded that he should never think of himself. After all, there's a world out there that needs the gospel. There's a world that needs to hear Jesus. And not only is there a world that needs the gospel, there are hungry people who need to be fed. And there are people who need to learn to read. And there are battered and abused people who need rescued. And the, the needs are endless. And all of these things are, in fact, true. Jesus Christ is the only hope for a broken world. And the world hears about Christ through the church. And yet, the number of pastors serving and leading the church is going down, not up. It's going down at an alarming rate. I heard just this week two churches in our broader area who are now looking for pastor. They're looking for leaders. They're looking for someone to lead them, to shepherd them. One of the biggest problems in the church is pastoral burnout. Pastors who, because they neglect to take care of themselves... They neglect to look after their own families. They end up stressed out emotionally, spiritually. They end up lonely. They end up falling to temptation or throwing in the towel. Or some of them just end up faking it. Spiritually empty while still feeding their flock. In his book, Dangerous Calling, Paul Tripp writes this. He says, one of the silent scandals of the modern evangelical church is that there are many, many pastors who are leaders of gospel ministries, but they have little felt need of the gospel in their daily lives. They're not concerned with the healing, the nurture and growth of their own hearts. They are functionally more in love with ministry than they are in love with Christ. And this, you know, this, you should know this is nothing new. This is not sort of a new development. This goes back decades. It goes back centuries. It goes back even to the time when Timothy was called to serve the church. Timothy is, is facing all kinds of pressure from without, pressure from within, and those pressures can lead a pastor to uh, a lack of discipline, a lack of preparation, or even worse, total self-reliance. And to Timothy, and then really all pastors who would follow, Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself. Watch yourself. Yes, there's a command to teach these things to others. And that phrase, these things, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, is, is a reference to all of Paul's teaching about Christ, 
the reality and truth about Jesus, his incarnation, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, his ascension, his work now as our mediator and our intercessor. Keep these things, teach these things to others, but still there's a command to watch out for yourself. Now, how does Timothy watch out for himself? Well, the first thing that Paul does is addresses his conduct. We'll give verse 12 again. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So in the first century Greco-Roman world, you only had two types of people in terms of, you know, age. There were the young people and old people. That was it. Now we have, you know, we have all kinds of different generations. You know, we have the, you know, millenniums, which, you know, are often, you know, maligned by so many people. We have the millenniums, those are those who would be between the ages of really 18 and maybe 29 or 30. So if you're in that age range, you kind of fit in the, the millenniums. We have those who, we have Generation Y, which is kind of a bridge generation. Not everyone accepts this, but some, some write about it. Then Generation X, those who are born between, those who are between 33 and Roughly 50 years of age, born between 1965 and 1985, early 80s. So Generation X. Uh, they have the baby boomers who were born between roughly 1946 and 66. So those who were between the ages of mid-50s to mid-70s. And then finally, what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, those who were in the late 70s and older. So you have all these generations and, and characteristics ascribed to various generations um, but in the first century, there were just the young and the old. That was it. And it basically, 40 was kind of the, the demarcation. Those under 40 were referred to as young men. In the Greek, the neo, the neo, the young men. And those who were all over 40, and they were, they were the elders. And they had, and each group had its own social club, its own events, its own facilities in some respect, its own gatherings. Well, Timothy, as you've heard me say before, was, he was around 30, maybe 31, 32. We don't know exactly. Um, he was pretty young to bear the full pastoral responsibility for such an important church and such an important city. And as a result of his age, it would not have been surprising for people to look down on him and to say, look, what do I have to learn from you? You're part of the young generation. You're not part of the older folks. You're part of the younger folks. Why would I listen to you? What can you possibly teach me that I don't already know? There were those who were criticizing him, at least apparently, because of his lack of experience, his, his lack of maturity. And there are some who were, we, we believe, were even inclined to reject his message entirely because of no other reason than his age. And Paul says to him, just because you're younger than most, this should not be a cause for timidity. It should not be a cause for shyness. It should not be a, a cause to cower under the pressure of the, quote, more mature. God uses young people to advance his kingdom. And we have, I don't know what we call it here, Capshaw, we used to call it a family Sunday. We have, and I'm looking out, I see we have kids sitting there today. God uses young people to advance his kingdom. And so Paul wants Timothy to know, look, don't let people look down on you or despise you. Don't become overwhelmed by fear because people are, are saying you're too young or you don't have the life experience. You are to be an example to those who are older. Example in speech, the way you talk. An example in conduct, the way you live your life. Example in love, the way you treat others. An example in the faith that you demonstrate at home and at work. An example of your purity. A pastor elder, though imperfect 
must set an example for others to follow. If he does then, he will, the people will have a model on how to live in this dark world. And, and this is so important, he might eliminate or at least reduce, reduce those objections to the faith that people might lobby against him. Here's our first point this morning. Godly character strips gospel detractors of their ammunition. Godly character strips gospel detractors of their ammunition. In other words, there are always those outside of the faith who are looking for ways to reject, reasons to reject the Christian faith. There are all those that we, you know, Paul calls, or Jude calls them scoffers. There are others who, who are skeptics and they, they don't believe. And there are always people who are looking for a way to, 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 to discredit Jesus and his teachings. We know the gospel itself is offensive, right? The gospel by its very nature offends because of what it presupposes. The gospel is good news that announces God's salvation to all mankind. Well, what does that presuppose? It presupposes that everybody needs to be saved, right? That everyone needs a rescuer. Everyone needs to be delivered. That no one can actually get there on their own. Well, that offends people. When we talk about salvation, uh, depending on what tradition you come from, we often use different sort of metaphors or phrases to explain God's salvation. Sometimes you hear people talk about asking Jesus into their hearts. Um, that's how they describe salvation, which is problematic. I mean, it, you know, we're not going to necessarily criticize someone who says that, but it's problematic in that it seems like we're kind of doing God a favor, kind of inviting him in. We're, we're sort of, you know, relenting and getting, giving God what he wants. Others talk about conversion to Christianity as, as getting saved. And that's fine. That's, that's biblical language. It's certainly okay to say that. But that demands context, doesn't it? I mean, what is the person who, who has no frame of reference in terms of the Christian faith going to say when you talk about getting saved? They're going to say what? Getting saved from what? When my, my mother, who was divorced from my father at the time, herself dealing with alcoholism, and God brought her to safe in a, a miraculous way, as all salvations are, all conversion experiences. She then called my, my father, her ex-husband, and she said, John, I got to tell you, I got saved yesterday. Well, here's a guy who's caught up in drugs and alcohol himself. He had no idea. Saved from what? What, what, what are you saved from? Did ravenous wolves surround your house and you're able to stave them off somehow? Did, did a tornado sweep through your, your, your neighborhood and somehow you, you avoided it? What were you saved from? Were you diagnosed with some illness that now there's a cure? What, what exactly were you saved from? Saved from what? Just saying I got saved doesn't really provide enough context. It doesn't give the full picture. When God talks about salvation... He talks about it like this. God takes those who are spiritually dead and he makes them alive by bringing them to repentance and faith. When God talks about salvation, he talks about taking those who are rebels and outcasts and enemies and rejects and bringing them to a place of brokenness and a place of belief. Uh, one old-time theologian uses this metaphor to explain salvation. He says, if you think you're saved because you give Jesus your heart, you will not be saved. It is one thing to choose Jesus as one's Lord and Savior, to give him one's heart and commit oneself to him. It is a very different thing to believe on him as a redeemer of sinners of whom one is chief. 
One does not choose a redeemer for oneself, you understand, nor give one's heart to him. The heart is a rusty old can on a junk heap, a fine birthday gift indeed, he says sarcastically. But a wonderful Lord passes by and has mercy on the wretched tin can, sticks his walking cane through it and rescues it from the junk pile and takes it home with him. That is how it is. See, God, it's not as though we decide at one moment, you know, I think I've, I've really surveyed my options and, and I think maybe the best option for me is I'm going to give my heart to God. I mean, there are other people, I've got other suitors, but I'm going to give my heart to God. No, God works in such a way to miraculously bring someone who is dead and lost and hopeless and broken and God, by his own mercy and his own love, he woos that person and draws that person and brings that person to saving faith. That is how it is. And so we talk about that. We talk about our hearts being wretched. We talk about having no spiritual good in us by which God should approve of us or accept us. We start talking about God, salvation being a work of God alone, and which involves really no contribution of ours. Well, that's offensive. That's offensive. The same apostle that wrote 1 Timothy in another letter calls the gospel the stench of death to those who are perishing. The stench of death. I was uh, a bit of a practical joker myself during my first, my early years in college and my late years for that matter. But we would, uh, we would find, you know, people in, in our dorm and we thought worthy of being tormented. So we would, we would do practical jokes. And I remember one, I didn't do this and I'm, and kids don't do this if, if I'm not advising you to do this. Um, but in one uh, dorm room where, where a guy was particularly annoying, there was a guy who found um, a, a dead animal on the road, roadkill. And you know, in, the, in certain rooms, you have the panels you can kind of lift up and move. And so, again, I'm not advocating this, and this wasn't my idea either. But there was a guy who put a dead animal in this guy's room and then, you know, moved the ceiling panel back where it was. Well, you can imagine it doesn't take very long for that room to start really, really stinking. And then, you know, you're looking under beds, trying to think, what in the world is going on? Why does my room smell? It's a stench. Paul says that the gospel is a stench in the nostrils of those who are perishing. They don't want to hear about it. What do you mean I need a savior? What do you mean I need someone to rescue me? I'm doing pretty well on my own. It is an offense, the gospel is. And what for Timothy, the, the ammunition was, that was fired at him was, you're too young. Now the, the ammunition that's leveled against us can be any variety of things. Our responsibility, though, is to eliminate those obstacles that might come between the messenger and the message. To rid skeptics and scoffers of as much anti-Christian ammunition as we can by living in a way that actually is an attraction to people. For us, the ammunition might be any variety of things. We, I led a small group a couple of years ago through the book, uh, The Unbelievable Gospel by Jonathan Dodson. And one of the points the author makes is one reason that people don't receive the gospel from us is because we made it unbelievable. Not unbelievable uh, in the fact that, that a living God sent his son to die for undeserving people. People can receive that, perhaps. That's not the sticking point. Not unbelievable from the fact that Jesus rose again. That's not the stumbling block. But it's become unbelievable because the message of grace, love, forgiveness, to the rebel, acceptance, to the outcast, love, to the undeserving. It's often communicated by people who act like they are deserving. 
is communicated by people who believe, who act like they're already perfect without God's grace, who then become preachy and judgmental. And so the message, salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then becomes obscured by the messenger who lives in a way that actually contradicts this beautiful message. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to live perfect lives in order to validate our message. That would only be the case if our message was God saves perfect people. It doesn't mean that we can never sin, rebel, or royally mess up, or we'll turn people away from Jesus. That would only be the case if the message was heaven is for people who never mess up. But that's not the message. Look at verse 13. Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, there are three imperatives that Paul gives to Timothy, that Timothy is to devote himself to or to immerse himself in. Three activities that will sum up his primary responsibility as a pastor and elder. One is the public reading of Scripture, which just refers to biblical exposition. It just refers to opening up the Scriptures, reading, and explaining them. Now, it sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? But that's not what happens in a lot of churches. A lot of churches have resorted to gimmickry and giveaways and special this and special that. And the reading and explaining of the scriptures has actually fallen by the wayside. And Paul says, devote yourself to the exposition of scripture. And secondly, he says also to exhortation, paraclesis, which is calling people, humbly calling people to respond to what is read and explained. So read and explain the scriptures and then lovingly come alongside people and exhort them to actually do what the scriptures say, to believe what the scriptures teach. And then instruction, didascalalia, which is, uh, refers to Christian doctrine. The, the goal of these isn't simply more knowledge, but transformation. And when this is faithfully done, when God's word is opened and, and explained carefully and responsibly, God actually does the work of capturing hearts, breaking down walls, removing blinders, shaping people into the image of his son. Here's our second point this morning. The work of God flourishes wherever the word of God is read and rightly explained. See, the power is not in our example. The power is in the word of God. The written word of God, which testifies to the living word of God. So what we're called to do as pastors and elders and leaders is to feed people Christ by way of the exposition of the word of God. This is why the reading and expositing of the text is central to what we do here at Capshaw on Sunday mornings. We open up the scriptures and, and, and we explain them. And there are a lot of other things we could be doing. We could say, when Pastor Brandon did the, the welcome this morning, I was thinking, you know, he could say, if, you, if you're new with us, uh, why don't you, you can register. We're going to give away a new car or a new house or a new whatever. But that doesn't really win anyone's heart. God doesn't, that's not how, we, how the people are transformed. It's by the reading and explaining of the scriptures. Now, this is not all we do when we gather. We pray for one another. We sing songs together. We share testimonies of God's faithfulness, like you're going to hear in just a moment. We celebrate the Lord's table. We encourage one another in fellowship. We carry one another's burdens. We baptize believers. 
But the word of God is central to what we do. In fact, it actually drives our agenda. John Stott explains Paul's admonition this way. The biblical text is neither a conventional introduction to a sermon on a largely different theme, <clears throat> nor a convenient peg on which to hang a rag bag of miscellaneous thoughts, but a master which dictates what is control and controls what is said. So the pastor is to devote himself to the public reading of the scripture. Now, I believe that Paul inserts this phrase here for a very specific reason. <clears throat> I believe he does so because he wants to make sure that lest Timothy or we start to believe that everything is riding on our behavior, our conduct, Paul reminds us that our primary task is to proclaim the scriptures which testify about Jesus Christ because that's where the power is. That's where the power is. See, the scriptures, which of course was a reference to everything that had been revealed at that time, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the, the apostolic writings, and the scriptures, even though what we have is the scriptures, uh, you know, 60 plus books, they all really tell one story. There is what's called a meta narrative or an overarching story that's being told by all of these books as they work together. And that story, that one big story has a singular point and it's this, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. What is the message that we speak? It's simple. The overarching message of the scriptures, which Paul tells Timothy to devote himself, is, is simple. It's this. Salvation comes from the Lord. God saves sinners like me. God saves sinners like me. That's the message of the scriptures. God saves And how does he do it? He does it through the, perf, the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole Bible is about. And showing how it all fits together requires a gift. Uh, and Timothy has been given this gift, he's told, and he's not to neglect it. Timothy's commanded both not to neglect the gift he has, verse 14, but also to practice these things so that all may see his progress. But here's the reality. Just like anyone else, Timothy's progress would be slow going. Just like every other so-called hero of the Bible, Timothy was a broken person. He was a sinner. In fact, Timothy, we know from other writings, was given to timidity by nature. He would wrestle with ups and downs just like everyone else. He had plenty of faults and sin tendencies. And Paul tells him, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or the doctrine. He says, <clears throat> in other words, watch your life and doctrine closely. Now, I believe there's a, there's a reason that Paul links these two together. Certainly one of the reasons was that Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy was teaching correct doctrine, and therefore he was supposed to watch it closely. And certainly one of the reasons, as we talked about, was he, Paul was, Timothy was supposed to watch his life so that it would not discredit his message. But I believe something else was going on here. I believe that, that the reason Paul links these two life and doctrine so closely together is that he wants Timothy to look at them together. In other words, Paul wanted Timothy to avoid the temptation to evaluate himself his ministry, his success, based on the approval of his peers or based on his own performance. So here's what I'm getting at. This is our third point. Our personal failures and successes must be viewed in light of the gospel. Our ministries 
with their victories and setbacks must be viewed in light of the gospel. Our personal lives with their victories and setbacks, with their failures and successes must be viewed in light of the gospel. In other words, we're going to fail. You're going to fail and I will fail. We're going to miss opportunities to share the gospel. There are times and occasions where we will lead poorly. We're going to cave in to temptation, such as the nature of living in these sin-cursed bodies, what Paul calls the flesh. Now, on the flip side, there will be times, by God's grace, because of the indwelling spirit and our dependence thereon, that we actually resist temptation. Temptation comes, we, we rely on the Spirit, we resist it. There will be times when we share our faith boldly. There will be times when we make God-honoring decisions. But in all of this, in all of this, our success, our failures, our ups and downs, our victories and setbacks, our value, our identity is not tied up in our performance. What defines us is that we are in Christ. We belong to Him. He is our hope. He is our strength. He is our righteousness. So you hear you have this 30-something young man who's, who's ministering in a context where most of the people are older than he is, and he's naturally inclined to timidity. He's naturally maybe, you know, if I can extrapolate from this, maybe he's, he's sort of a laid-back guy. He's a guy who may not sort of seize opportunities when they come. And people are already apparently despising him, looking down on his youth. And Paul says to Timothy, look, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't let those people, don't, don't worry about those who are looking down on you. Don't worry about those who are judging you. You be faithful and consider your life and doctrine together. In other words, when you look at your own ministry, when you look at your own performance, don't do it devoid of the very message that you proclaim. So when you look at your own successes and failures, be careful to consider them in light of the gospel which you are proclaiming to those under your tutelage. When we fail, what tends to happen? Well, we go, we often go from humiliation, I did it again, to denial, I don't want to let anyone else know, to self-pity, often to cover-up mode. How can I cover this up? How can I make sure that no one else knows about my failures? We start to think of ways to justify our actions, to make sense of it, to explain it away. This is what happens when we fail, and, and often there's a, there's a trajectory that leads to greater and greater frustration and greater and greater despair. Now, conversely, what happens when we succeed, when we really have a good week, we knock one out of the park, spiritually speaking, things go really well for us. Well, our dependence on God can quickly wane, and we can start to very subtly trust in our own ability our own plans, our own preparations, our own efforts. And the reality is we're no less dependent on God when we succeed than we are when we fail. We need God both during our successes and our failures because the reality is the worst that we do can never render us outside of God's love for us in Christ. And the very best that we do is really not that great after all when held in light of God's holiness. So we're never sort of at the point, either when we do really well or really poorly, that we're outside of the need for God's constant grace in our lives. We need 
him just as much when we succeed as we do when we fail. The point is our identity, our value, our worth is not tied to our successes nor to our failures. Our identity is anchored to Jesus' accomplishment, his perfect life, his death on our behalf, his resurrection, his ascension. We can say it another way. If you are in Christ this morning, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've come to the end of your rope, so to speak, and believed on him, if you are in Christ, who you are this morning has nothing to do with what you do or don't do, nothing to do with what you accomplish or don't accomplish. What you are is loved. What you are is forgiven. What you are this morning is adopted. What you are is accepted by God because of Jesus, not because of your successes or failures. You are righteous because Christ's perfect record has been credited to you the moment you believed. We can say it this way. You were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Scripture talk about salvation that way. You were saved. There is a time in our lives, if we're in Christ, when we came, we, we were broken, we repented, we believed on him, and we were made alive. You are being saved. God is still conforming and working and shaping you into the image of his son. And you will be saved. There is a point when we will be glorified, those who are in Christ, as Chris led us through this morning. And we will be glorified. Those who are in Christ will be glorified. And Paul says in Romans 8, that I reckon the glory that is to be revealed in us is nothing compared. Nothing compares to that. Our sufferings can't compare. Nothing compares to that glory. Now, this helps us to make sense of Paul's final words in this section. Paul tells Timothy... That if he persists in this, in reminding people of the story of redemption, which centers on Jesus, he will save both himself and his hearers. Now, this is one of those statements we say, wait a second. How could Timothy save anyone? Isn't salvation a work of God alone? The answer is yes, but we have to understand what Paul means by this. He's talking about that final salvation. What the Bible talks about, again, it talks about that, those three tenses, past, present, and future, and what Paul is saying to Timothy is by proclaiming the good news of the gospel and living in such a way that, that you don't give ammunition to the gospel detractors, you will help your followers persevere until the end. Yes, it's going to be God who does it. It's God's work. But God will use Timothy's efforts to bring new believers into the kingdom and to save the saved, to keep till the end those who belong to God. Every morning... I get a text from a lady in, in my previous church. She's 81, I think, maybe 82. She's a sweet lady. And uh, I guess it was five or six years ago, uh, uh, I officiated the memorial for her husband. They've been married for many years, many decades. And this lady just continues to support and encourage and pray for me. And every morning I get a text from her. And it's usually the, a summary of a, a particular Bible verse or phrase. And this morning as I was reviewing my notes and and going over uh, this message, I got a text from her. Her name is Bernice. And it just said this, our love has limits. God's love is limitless. And that's really our hope this morning. That's our hope this morning. That because of the love that has been lavished on us in Christ, because of the adoption that we have received in Christ, because God, by his mercy, brought us to a place of repentance and faith in him, we are never going to be outside of the love of God. His love is limitless. 
And so whether you're 30 years old, you're in a brand new church plan and people are despising you, they're looking down on you, they're saying, why should I listen to you? You don't know anything. You're so much younger than I am. Or maybe you're a 12-year-old and you, in your neighborhood, people are doing things and saying things that you know that you shouldn't be involved in. Maybe they're looking at you strangely because you go to church and you're a Christian. Or maybe you're a senior adult and you're you're walking with God and yet the people who are around you, they think you're strange because all the, the times you're at the church building or maybe you're starting out in a new career or maybe you're in a, in a marriage that's struggling. Whatever it is, your hope and my hope is this. The love of God is unchanging. It's limitless. It's faithful. And he will keep us to the end, those that he saves. This is the beauty of the gospel. We're not earning anything from God by living a certain way. We're not contributing to our salvation. But Paul says to Timothy, make sure you live in such a way so as not to give those who would detract, those who would scoff at the gospel, any other ammunition. But instead, live in such a way that might bring people, attract people to the beauty of Jesus Christ. May God help us to live that way. But even when we don't, to trust that it'll be his righteousness, not ours, that guarantees our future. Let's pray.